You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Do you have a Bible? And I hope you do. Get to Isaiah chapter 53. I do want to welcome you guys again back to Overflow. Uh, I hope you all had a good Christmas break uh, with your friends and family, uh, eating your mom's cooking uh, and whatnot. Uh, but I am glad you guys are back. As much as I have enjoyed the rest and the break, uh, I was really excited to get back, and there were no more episodes of Sherlock to watch. So I'm ready to get after it. I do want to welcome the freshmen back to Denton. Can we welcome the freshmen back to Denton? Uh, Denton is actually really dead without freshmen and students here, so we have missed you guys. Uh, I also want to welcome back uh, our mission team who went to Asia for Christmas break. Can we welcome them back? As well, we've got some sitting over here. Um, when they were in Asia, I really had no idea uh, how things were going over there until I met with my guy, Ross Chadwick. Um, Ross is an older guy who disciples me. Uh, if you don't know what discipleship is, uh, think fraternity, sorority, bigs and little, uh, except a lot less t-shirts and a lot more Jesus. Um, that's actually a really poor, kind of good definition of discipleship. Um, but if you have any questions about what that is, uh, come and ask me. We're actually uh, all about that here. Um, anyways, we met one Friday during Christmas break, and Ross is the dad of Megan. Megan was the leader of the trip, and I asked him if he knew anything about the trip, and he said, have you not heard? And so side note, I know that they're in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, and it can get you killed. And so the response, have you not heard, uh, about gave me a heart attack in the middle of Zara's. And so Ross told me this, that one night, Megan told the group that they were going to club, to a club. And club is code for underground church. Um, anyways, the girls didn't know what club meant. So they just, like, went along with it. So they get in the taxi. They, like, get dressed, get in the taxi. And they drive some distance into the city. They get out of the taxi. And then they're walking along the street where, no joke, um, this black van straight out of like Fast and the Furious, slides open. These men come out and put hoods on over their head, throw them into the van. And the whole time Ross is telling me this, I'm like, no way. He's like, yes way. And I'm like, no way, yes way. Um, the rest of the story goes like this. The girls are sobbing uncontrollably. Uh, they finally reach the destination. They drag them inside the building where they then realized it was an underground church, not an actual club. And they got to worship with them uh, there that night while at the same time dealing with like this uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so that was it. And Ross swore to me that that was the truth. He was not lying. And so on one hand, I'm like pretty concerned for like their well-being. On the other hand, I'm quite entertained on their expense. Uh, anyways, for the remaining time that they're in Asia, I tell like everyone I come in contact with this story. And Ross does too. And then they get back. And Megan's here at the church one Sunday. I'm like... Megan, how was Asia? Wasn't that crazy? And she was like, what are you talking about? And it turns out that Ross actually heard the story wrong. They didn't get thrown into a van. They did have to get into a van, and they had to put their hoods on, their jacket hoods on. <laughs> and so to everyone I told that story to, I confess I lied to your face, but only because Ross lied to me first. Um, all that to say, this is a privilege to get to do this on Tuesday nights. What a joy it is to get to worship our king together. I do not take this for granted. All right, so to set the stage for Isaiah, um, if this is your first time at Overflow, 
My name is Zach Cunningham, uh, and for 87% of my life, that's 20 out of 23 years, I was a fraud, a fake Christian. Uh, if you don't know this, it's actually really easy to fake your way through Christianity, especially when your grandpa's the pastor. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was baptized in my mother's uterus, either in her bodily fluids or in my brother's saliva. Uh, I grew up growing to church. Uh, I rocked a James Avery cross necklace for many, many years, uh, and then my little naive self went off to college, um, and for uh, my very first class in college, four and a half years ago, was a class called Honors Good Society. And basically, it's a philosophy class where the discussion is, what makes a good society? With uh, topics like government, and religion, and money, and laws, or taxes, just whatever you name it. On the first day of class, uh, I'm 18 years old. We were passed out a, a copy of Exodus chapter 20, uh, and that's the Ten Commandments. And Professor Major asked if the Christians in the room were willing to raise their hand. And there were like 40 of us in this room, and then one girl on the front left in my vision raised her hand like quite proudly, and then me like half-heartedly raising my hand. So two of us. There were two of us in this class, and for three weeks, we were perpetually and figuratively beat down. Uh, in the discussion of religion's role in so society. I dreaded going to this class for the whole semester, um, but something else was going on uh, in my life, deep down in my soul. Uh, one night in my dorm room, I thought, I'm going to set out on a mission to prove the Bible wrong. Because if I could prove the Bible wrong, then I didn't have to do anything it said. I could live my life however I wanted to live my life. No king for me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be the best dang accountant this world has ever seen, uh, or I'm going to die trying. But by the grace of God, a guy named Matt Morkecho met me in that dark space in my life, and he invited me here uh, to overflow. Well, I sat right over there under the teaching of Austin Wadlow, who preached the gospel in a way I had never heard before in my life. And so on one hand, I was very attracted to the way that he preached the gospel. On one hand, I was trying to prove that there was no such thing as God. Um, but on the other hand, I really wish it was a God who loved me that existed. And it was in that space of my life that the Lord led me to Isaiah chapter 53. And then with Matthew 7, wrecked my life. So I honestly had not read much of the Old Testament in my life up until this point. The Old Testament to me was like um, that weird uncle at family reunions. Uh, you don't really know who it is, why he's there, if he's related to anything or how he is. He's just there and shows up. Um, but, like a match dropped on dry grass, Isaiah 53 lit up the Old Testament for me. Not as some old scripture that was fulfilled and we didn't have to read it, but as the very precious word of God. And if you have not read Isaiah chapter 53, uh, it is my great joy and honor uh, to take you there tonight. And I pray that God would use it. Uh, as a spiritual highlight of your life, as he did with me. So, let's begin in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through it, and then chop it up. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they gave him, or they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter in Isaiah, God. We pray now that you would show us Christ. God, let us look at this and see Christ. If we don't see it, may we keep looking until you show it to us. Make it so. Amen. First, I need to apologize to you all. Um, This is a remarkable, one of the most remarkable passages of scripture. It is often called the fifth gospel. Uh, It has supplied more text to preachers of the gospel than any text in the Old Testament. It is quoted or referred to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. They refer virtually to every verse we just read. It is said that in this chapter are the most important things you need to know. Charles Spurgeon will say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Martin Luther will say that every Christian should have it memorized. It is at the heart of the book of Isaiah, the Bible, and even your own life. And the accolades for this chapter are almost endless. But tonight, as you'll see, we are only going to be able to scratch the surface of what we see in this baby. But my hope and prayer is that, like me, you would find this chapter to be so compelling that you would go back to it and dig and dig for years and years to come. So now, the question I'm posing is, what's so special about this chapter? What's the point? Have you overhyped it, Zach? It seems like you might have overhyped it. Uh, Not at all. Uh, Impossible. Uh, We could be talking about this chapter for the rest of our lives. Why? Because this chapter was written about our king, and it was written 700 years before he was born. 
700 years. Nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine as bright as it does here in Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus Christ came into the world, God opened the eyes of Isaiah to see the very heart of the gospel. And it's as if he's at the foot of Calvary riding with the mind and the eyes of Almighty God. And my goal tonight is to show you this treasure. Because here's the deal. You're going to have to do something with this. You're going to have to do something with this. If this is true, you can't just gloss over it. If Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ was born, is written with in perfect detail the life, the death, and resurrection of the cross of Christ, you're going to have to do something about it. Most people our age, um, instead of thinking about the things of God and um, spiritual things, um, choose to just not think about it, as if not thinking about it makes it any less true. Absolutely not. Not with this passage. This, this moment in history is the climax of history. The, the center of reality with which we live. And the title of tonight's message is Christ-Centered Climax or Christ-Centered History or Christ-Centered Reality. Because here's the thing. Um, they were talking about this 700 years before it happened, and we're still talking about it 2,000 years afterwards. And you're going to have to do something about that. And tonight, we get the joy of just beholding the cross again. And here's why I want to do this. Here's why I want to stare at the cross tonight. If the cross is the climax of history, we got to get it right. We've got to understand what is happening at the cross. Because if we're banking, you guys know we're banking our entire eternity on this, on the cross. And we have got to get it right. The cross is not just about Jesus dying on a tree. You've got to understand there is a much greater and magnificent thing happening at the cross of Christ. And my task tonight is to take you verse by verse through this and show you Christ and what he did on the cross. So let's begin. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah starts off asking the question, who has believed our message? Who's going to believe this? Because in, in reality, the people in Isaiah's day, hardly anyone believed. Hardly any Jews believed in Christ. Why? Because this, what we just read, this is a gospel of suffering. Horrible suffering. The Messiah must suffer. And to the Jews, their king was not going to suffer. We're not going to believe this. And so they didn't. And not much has changed today. Keep reading. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So he, the servant of God, grew up like a plant growing from dry ground. Um, think West Texas, like desert ground, with like cracks everywhere. You guys from West Texas, you know, you know what I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden, a plant just coming up out of the middle of nowhere. And you look at that like, how in the world is something growing here? And so here we have Isaiah describing the spiritual state of the world. It is rampant with sin. For 400 years, God has been silent. And it is a dark place, pitch black, 
and then all of a sudden, a light. Charles Spurgeon will say this about this verse. He says, is it very dry ground? Ah, well, that is hopeful soil. Christ is a root out of a dry ground. And the more there is to discourage, the more you should be encouraged. Read it the other way. Is it dark? Then all is fair for a grand show of light. Because the light never seems so bright as when the night is very, very dark. Um, guys, if you look at the world today, you're on the news, or you're scrolling through Twitter, and you think, man, this place is a dark place. We have people eating Tide Pods. Uh, are we going to World War III? Who knows? Um, people are dying left and right. It's a very dark place, and it looks like there's no hope. Uh, listen to me. We have hope. Because Christ came into a very dark world to defeat sin, and listen to me, he's coming back to a dark world, but this time to claim the reward for his suffering. We have hope, praise God. Uh, also, we're going to see that the plant wasn't a pretty one. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Here's where the Bible is going to rub hard against our Photoshop, put the best version of yourself on Instagram culture that we live in. Jesus Christ was not a six-foot-three white dude with flowing locks, Mel Gibson. He was a Middle, Eastern, a Middle Eastern man born in Bethlehem, and he wasn't pretty. There was nothing about Christ that we would look at, and it would create a sense of desire within us. He was not pretty. He was actually the opposite. Keep reading verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So as John's going to tell us centuries later, uh, Jesus went to his own people, the Jews, and even his own family, and they rejected him. Instead of the glorious homecoming that he deserved, he got complete hatred and rejection. And so this is the state of our hearts before Christ. We are rebels. And when our king came on the scene, we shouted, crucify him. Keep reading. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you guys realize what that just said? This is what was happening when Jesus went to the cross. Look with me at this passage and look for the words, encircled words. Our and we. It says, our griefs. Our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and the chastisement that we deserved, we are the problem. And because of our sin, we stand underneath the wrath of Almighty God. But something happened at the cross, and we invite you, if you've never heard this message before or believed in this message before, to hear it and believe it with joy tonight, that Jesus Christ went to the cross 
to endure the penalty and to pay the price for sinners. To take the just and righteous wrath of God that is due us, you and I, underneath the just and righteous wrath of God. Judgment for our sin, eternal judgment. And this isn't popular. People don't like to talk about the wrath of God. God is a God of love. That's very Old Testament thinking, Zach. Not at all. The Bible is clear. You cannot have the love of God without the wrath of God. You can't have the love of God without his wrath. You say, no, Zach, you just made that up on the spot. No, the Bible is clear. How does God demonstrate his love for us? Romans 5 says God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Why did Christ have to die? What's that about? Jesus Christ takes our place and says, I will take the punishment. Give me the wrath. This is what was happening at the cross. You're not saved because Jesus received a crown of thorns. You're not saved because Jesus was crucified to a cross. There is something much deeper going on here. When Jesus was in the garden about to go to the cross, he wasn't sweating blood because he was about to get crucified to a tree. That's not why he was sweating blood. This is God in the flesh. He's not afraid to go to a cross. A lot of people go to the cross. We've got people burning alive, singing songs to Jesus on the cross. Christ was not afraid to get crucified. It was something else. What was his plea in the garden? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what was the cup? Isaiah and Jeremiah are very clear. The cup is the wrath of Almighty God. And that is why Christ was shedding blood. And when he went to the cross to take that cup, he took our Place. He bore our iniquities and sorrow, and he took the full weight of the holy and divine wrath of God that was due us, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ didn't just die to save you from your sin. He died to save you from the wrath that was due you because of your sin. The wrath that was due you. Paul Washer has said it like this. It's like you and I are about 100 yards from a dam that is 1,000 miles high, and a thousand miles wide, and behind that dam is water. And in an instant, that dam disappears, disappears, and the water rushes at us like a violent torrent. And in that moment, it don't, it don't matter how fast you are, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you are going to die. You cannot work your way out of that, and as the water rushes down to hit us, the ground opens up and swallows every single drop of that water before it hits us. And so at the cross did Jesus Christ drink down the cup of God's wrath every last drop and turn that cup over and say, it is finished. It is finished. It is a gospel, a good news, a gospel of substitution. There is a double exchange happening here. The wrath that was due us is now placed on Christ. And you hear this all the time, that God turned his face from Jesus because he could not bear to see his son on the cross, as if he didn't want him to go there and it caused him pain. That is not what is happening 
at the cross. Yes, God did turn his face away from Jesus. But it wasn't because he saw his son there. It was because he saw your sin. The very essence of sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. That for our sake, our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. To be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, he no longer saw his son. He saw the sin of everyone who would believe in him. And in that moment, God poured out his wrath on the son, removing his presence from him for the first time in all eternity. And Jesus Christ bore our wrath. But that's not all that happened. Because if that was it, if Christ just took our wrath that was due us, our slate is wiped clean, now we're at a state of innocence with God. A state of innocence. But you have no merit to enter heaven. Your, your slate is wiped clean. Your account balance, is, your debt is at zero now. But you have no deposit, no merit to enter into heaven. But in this moment, something else happens. The righteousness of Christ that he got from his perfect obedience to the Father's last command is now placed on us. And our sins have been atoned for, and God now looks at us and sees Christ. This is what happened on the cross. But praise God, it did not end there. What a glorious thing that 700 years before this happened, Isaiah didn't just record the physical beatdown of Jesus. He didn't just record the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Keep reading. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You go through and look at the Gospels. When they were accusing and mocking Jesus, he did not say a word. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So it says he was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he was killed. But again, you go look at the Gospels. Jesus didn't stay on that cross. There was a tomb that was donated to him and Jesus had an honorable death. Isaiah does not spare any details. Keep reading. Verse 10 is important. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And it was here in verse 10 uh, that a lot of this started to come home for me. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that word will is translated all throughout scripture as pleasure. A lot of your Bibles say, but it pleased the Lord to crush him. Think about that. It pleased the Lord to crush the Son. Pleased him. It brought pleasure to the Lord to pour out his wrath on the Son. How in the world does that make any sense? God, what does that mean? 
I must have read that verse a thousand times. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. What does that mean? A truth that has gripped my heart since my eyes were first opened to it is this. The cross was not plan B. It was not an afterthought. I thought this my whole life. Like, God didn't create the world. Adam and Eve screw stuff up, and then God had to come up with a plan to fix everything. That's what I thought happened. The cross was not plan B. It was not an afterthought. It was the plan. The cross was the plan. Before the foundation of the world, the Son was going to die for sinners. See what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was the plan. But... How did it please the Father? What in the world does that mean? God, you have, to, you have to explain this one to me. And we get a glimpse of how this makes sense in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this. Looking at Jesus, the founder, praise God, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Christ went to the cross joyfully. Think about that. You've got to grasp what that means. That Christ looked at your sin and my sin and the weight of it, and then he joyfully said, to hell with the shame. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to sit at the right hand of my father. The cross was the plan. This is perfect submission from our king to the father. It pleased the Lord to crush his son, but it pleased the son to go to the cross. The cross was the plan, and listen, the cross was enough. If you came in here today carrying a load of baggage that you cannot carry and that you're ashamed of, if you have an addiction to drugs that you cannot shake, or an addiction to lust and pornography that consumes you every night when you lie in bed and you have a past sin that you cannot tell anyone, and because of all this, you think that you are unsavable, that there's no way that you could be saved Jesus didn't come for me. When you say that, think about this. What you are actually saying is that the cross wasn't enough for you. That the cross, that Jesus' death was not enough for you. That he couldn't possibly meet you where you were at. And that you needed something more than Jesus' death. But listen to me, the cross was enough. It was sufficient. 
And Jesus accomplished what he went to the cross to do. And he was buried, and three days later he arose, and it is right here in Isaiah. Read with me, verse 10, look for the resurrection of Christ. Verse 10, it was the will, the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall do what? Prolong his days. The will, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He is not dead anymore. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What does that mean? He shall see and be satisfied. We've got anguish here and satisfaction. In Hebrews, we had shame and joy. What is happening here? Read verse 11 again. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Well, see what? What are you looking at, Jesus, that that makes the anguish of the cross worth it? What are you looking at? Well, the answer is in verse 10. Read with me again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What does Christ see that makes the cross worth it? His offspring. His people. His reward. His people praising his glory. He endures the cross, dies, buried, resurrects, and he looks out and he sees his people and he says, it was worth it. I am satisfied. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many. One for many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Now what? Therefore, I, I being God, God is speaking, will divide him a portion with the many. Here is your prize, son. Here are your people. They are going to praise you for what you did for them. And he shall divide the spoil, the reward, with the strong. Our reward is going to be great in heaven. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the gospel. If you went home for Christmas break, and you had a blast for the first three hours, and then couldn't wait to get back here to Denton to see all your friends, to come to Overflow, and hopefully Zach would preach something that got me back into the swing of things. Listen, there is not anything else worth preaching but the gospel. I have nothing else to preach. But the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here and you were completely bored by all the talk of the cross and God's wrath, you have totally missed it. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you would be bored by it. The cross is not boring. The cross is not boring. And you never reach some sort of spiritual maturity where you move past this. Paul preached the gospel to Christians over and over again. 
Over and over in the Bible, you can't earn your way to God. You are justified by grace alone. That's it. That is it. There's only one way. There's only one way for you to appease God's wrath on your own, and it is to spend eternity in hell apart from God. That's the only way you do it alone. You can't do it alone, but Christ did it for you. He paid your debt. This is the message. It's the same song that Isaiah was singing 700 years before it happened and is the only song worth singing now. Christ and Christ risen. And we're going to be singing it until he comes back. And listen to me, he's coming back. And we are 38 minutes closer. 38 minutes closer to that glorious return. So if you're not a Christian in here, may God give you faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. It is a faith of reason and promise. This is fulfilled prophecy. The reality that believers and non-believers alike reckon with. You've got to do something about the cross. And brothers and sisters, you stare at the cross. Behold the glory of the cross. Yes, we deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus stood in our place. And we will sing as long as we have breath. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but praise God, he washed it white as snow. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.